Good morning. We're in the Gospel of Mark this morning. I invite you to uh, turn there. You'll also find it printed on an insert for you in your program. We've undertaken this series in Mark's Gospel, um, ordering our common life together as a church around the life of Jesus as recorded by Mark. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word read this morning. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 34 is our text. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's, mother, uh, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, in a world that clamors for our attention and affection... where even here and even now we who are gathered wrestle with all of the things in our life that perhaps only you know. But in these few sacred moments, God, we pray 
we pray that you would speak, that you would speak words um, not only of power and glory, but words of grace and comfort, that you would open our eyes that we may see and our ears that we may hear, that you would make yourself great and do all of this for your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Since I have been of the age where I could receive a summons to serve on a jury, I have never, ever received a summons to serve on a jury. I know some of you have. Some of you think you're actually on a favorites list. It seems like you just finished doing that, and yet here it goes again. It's interesting, though, because for serving uh, on a jury, one is summoned, right? It's actually called a summons. We are summoned by the court. Most of us don't like being summoned to do anything, especially when it, when it inconveniences our schedule and impinges upon our time. Indeed, it is something that is part of our civic duty, and yet it's incredibly inconvenient, mostly because we have to take time away from our work and away from our families, and sometimes because the matters that are being disposed of by the court are incredibly um, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, sometimes very gruesome things that juries are entrusted with. Not unlike us, Israel, too, was summoned by God repeatedly. If you go throughout the Old Testament, you see all the time that Israel was summoned by God, summoned to, um, to worship him, to, to cast their allegiance on him and him alone. I am the Lord your God, he said, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It is your task. It is your responsibility. It is your honor. It is your duty to love me. The problem is Israel did with God's summons the same thing that we do with jury summons. We try and get out of it any way possible because it impinges upon our time and it intrudes upon our lives because sin had blind Israel, blinded Israel to the goodness and the generosity of God. When God summoned them to worship him, they saw it as an inconvenience. God was inviting them to live. God in his great grace and relentless mercy was not through pursuing his people simply because they faked a pulled hamstring to get out of jury duty. God in his great mercy sent Jesus into the world. Mark had recorded for us the beginning, the prologue of Jesus' earthly ministry, wherein Jesus, um, the fulfillment of all that was prophesied, the fulfillment of all that God said he would do. Jesus comes, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and is taken, uh, taken upon himself the mantle that he is Israel. He goes into the wilderness, into a place of foreboding and fear in order to identify and show that he is going to be the faithful son of Israel who would go and stand in the place where all of our brothers and sisters before had failed and that Israel would be in fact found faithful because Jesus would be found faithful. Now, 
Mark time jumps. You'll notice that Mark is one of the shortest gospels that we have in the Bible. Mark's favorite transition is immediately. If you're a Seinfeld fan, it's yada, yada, yada. Immediately, because Mark, not incredibly concerned about all of the intervening details. Mark wants us to get straight to the point. And so here we have now, apparently something has happened and John the Baptist's ministry is decreasing. We see in verse, four, in verse 14, after John was arrested. We'll hear a little bit more about John a little bit later on. But after John was arrested, after John's ministry began to fade into the background, Jesus comes onto the scene. And for the first time, we hear recorded in verse 15 of Mark's gospel, the words of Jesus. And what did he say? Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Jesus' earthly ministry commences, there, there are several things that we need to see about what he says here in this text. Verse 15 is loaded because it is the, it is the thesis statement. It is, the, it, is, it is everything that Jesus is going to do in his earthly ministry. This is it. This is the declaration. This is what he has come to declare to God's people and to the waiting world. He said the time is fulfilled. Now, when you think about this, some of us have a very challenging relationship with time. Time is not our friend. Time is our enemy, whether it's because we're trying to get somewhere on time or because we don't feel like we have enough time. But when Jesus here says the time is fulfilled, there are a couple Greek words he could have used. One of the Greek words is this Greek word chronos, which is like where we get the word chronological, right? Something in sequence, as if it's to say, well, look at the, look at the time. I guess we need to do this now. That's not what Jesus was saying. So Jesus was saying the kairos, the supreme moment, the moment of all moments, the moment to which all of history was pointing, that moment, that moment has arrived. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. The supreme moment is now. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, this idea, this, this, this manifestation of God's rule and reign, God's promise that he would never, ever leave nor forsake his people, his promise that he would come and rescue his people, that he would be their God and they would be his. He said, that kingdom, that kingdom is, some translations say, at hand, and some translations say, near. Because let's be very clear about this. When we think about the kingdom of God, when we think about what it is and what it represents, the kingdom of God is no less than the person of Jesus. All of it rests on him. All of it is through him and by him. If you look at what Paul records for us over in Colossians chapter 1, 
In the first, in the first chapter, in verses 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The kingdom of God, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he is speaking of no less than himself and all that is under his authority, all that is under his domain, all that he draws to himself. That kingdom, that kingdom at this supreme moment, at this supreme time, that kingdom has drawn near. And so what does he say? What is the response to that kingdom drawing near in this supreme moment? The response is a decision. The, disp- the response is a decision, and he says the decision is this. It, in, in response to this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. The Bible, when the Bible talks about repentance, the Bible is speaking about a turning away from something. Very plainly, what Jesus is saying here is it is a turning from what Jesus hates and a turning towards what Jesus loves. It is a turning from what Jesus hates and a turning towards what Jesus loves. And it is a turning in totality. It's not a turning in parts. It's not a a mixed allegiance as we'll see. It It is a complete and total surrender. This idea of good news. This is not a New Testament original. Good news would have been around. It would have been declared by a herald. It would have been declared um, typically by someone in the employ of an emperor or a king. It would have been an announcement. Look at what the emperor has done. Therefore, look at what now you have to do. This is what is expected of you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done it all. If you remember one of the things that we've said is um, we were created for it all. We had it all. We lost it all in the fall. Jesus Christ came and did it all, and we get it all by his grace. And so what's happening here is the gospel, the good news, is a recounting of all that Jesus has done. It's a, it's a, it's a glorious retelling of all that our God has done to come and to rescue us. And so to repent and believe in that is to repent of any way that we have said, I have got to get to God on my own. And it is to believe that God has gotten to me on his own. Because in this supreme moment, the kingdom is near because the king is near. And so repent, turn from what Jesus hates and believe, turn towards what Jesus loves, turn to him and believe and trust. This was the entire premise of Jesus's ministry. It is a call for us. It is for us to reckon with and deal with this day, even now, this call that Jesus has. 
Do we believe? And for some of us, the prayer is, Lord, help my unbelief. Jesus invites us um, to hear how this kingdom unfolds by looking at his life, by seeing what he has done, by, uh, by, seeing unfold before, uh, by seeing unfold before all that witnessed and all that saw what Jesus has done in the world. And so we move on and we see the calling of Jesus' first disciples. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now, Fishers of Men is not a New Testament original. Some have said that because they, um, because they saw uh, Jesus or because Jesus saw uh, fishermen, it was, a, it was an object lesson. Hey, you're catching fish, but guess what? And it's okay if that's, if, I mean, that probably was part of it, right? Um, Jesus did a lot of object illustrations and a lot of, of, of lessons that way by teaching people uh, about the realities of the kingdom of God through the very plain and ordinary things that were surrounding them in life. And so, of course, it makes total sense for him to call fishers, uh, fishermen and say, I will make you become fishers of men, except it could have meant something more than that. In the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, what we find is that to be called a fisher of men is to be one that is in the employ of the judgment of God. Well, let's go look at it. It's um, back in Jeremiah, in the, um, in the 16th chapter of Jeremiah. We'll start at verse 14. Um, <clears throat> it's talking about how the Lord is going to restore Israel And Jeremiah records this. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their fathers. Verse 16 is kind of where you want to dial in here. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill out of, every, out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and filled my inheritance with their abominations. Do, do you see... Do you see what Jeremiah is saying? How he's recording the word of the Lord here. What, what's happening here is this idea of God going and, and retrieving and rescuing Israel is not so far separated from a concept of, of sending fishermen, of sending hunters, of sending those who would go and gather for himself Israel. But in the, in the Old Testament, that picture is a really ominous picture, right? Before they're rescued, they're going to pay for it, he says. 
They're in fact going to doubly repay for all the things that they have done, for all the detestable ways that they have laid waste both my promises and then allowed the carcasses of their, what did he say? Detestable idols to, pro- to pollute my land. And so for Jesus to take this idea on his lips was not just happenstance that standing by the Sea of Galilee, he saw some fishermen and said, hey, I have an idea. What Jesus said here was, no, this is the fulfillment. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. How do we know this? How do we know the kingdom is near? Because God is preparing to do his business that he has promised that he would do. It was a loaded phrase. It was a loaded phrase of of judgment. And and so what Jesus is doing is is saying to his disciples that you are now a part of this. But, But here's the grace in this. Now... What this phrase means now, because there's a, there's a new thing happening, right? Not so far disconnected from the old that it has nothing to do with it. But, it, but now in this new thing that is happening, those that are caught in the fisher's net see Jesus offered in their place. This is what it means to be, to be caught, to be fished for, <laughs> is that this has happened. Jesus has, Jesus has called them. And Jesus has offered himself in their place. The ultimate purpose of following and fishing is to bear witness to the coming kingdom, the supreme moment for which Jesus had come. Response to the king and the kingdom will either be found as one receiving faith or one receiving judgment. That is what it means to be found in the kingdom of God. It is either to be found as one who has received faith from the king or one who is to be found receiving judgment from the king. This was astonishing. This was astonishing. And I, want you, I don't want you to miss that when Jesus called his disciples, when Jesus first called his disciples, they, so they, they, they dropped their nets and immediately they went and they followed him. I've been fascinated to um, study some of the uh, culinary traditions in <laughs> Europe, specifically in places like Italy and Greece and other places where uh, there are there are families that have been in uh, whether it's uh, uh, running olive vineyards, whether it has been in the uh, just family businesses for cultivating uh, different crop of tomato or whatever. These these things have been in the families for generations. I mean, generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. The the the, the stories that are in that land and and here. It's no different, right? These, these family fishing businesses would have been generation upon generation upon generation. And, and what did they do? They, they dropped their nets and they left it all. In fact, here, Zebedee, this is the last time we hear of Zebedee in the New Testament. They just left him, left their nets, left the hired servants, left everyone Can you imagine? Jesus came and he called them. And they left. And he said, when you follow me, 
I will make you to become something. When you follow me, I will make you into something. When you, when you follow me, I will show you what it actually means to be alive, to be human, to be made in the image of God. This is what happens when you follow me. It was a call of complete and total surrender. It was a call of complete and total trust. It was a call of complete and total faith that these disciples left everything. They heard him. And can you just just imagine that something in his words, something in his person, it was his, it was the Lord, it was the king. And he said, follow me. And they left everything. And they dropped their nets. And they followed him. Jesus, in his own ministry, was called and commissioned and then immediately entered into conflict. You saw last week that he was, um, he was the called one. He was the one that received John's baptism. He was, he was commissioned, the voice of the Father coming from heaven, saying, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. And then immediately he goes into conflict, right? He goes and faces uh, the beginning of what will be um, a... a <laughs> a lifetime full of temptation in the desert places. And what's interesting here too, by the way, is that every time Jesus calls disciples, in Mark's gospel at least, there's always water somewhere. Here it's the Sea of Galilee. You'll see other places where Mark has called. And he just, in in casting the scene, there's water nearby. I don't think that's accidental. And, and then Jesus calls his disciples, commissions them, come and follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And what happens then? Mark says, and immediately Jesus went to the synagogue, and, and the disciples were then taken immediately into their on-the-job training. And what was that on-the-job training? It was conflict. So this is what ticks me off about the health and wealth and prosperity gospel that gets preached all the time. Because if you look at the Bible, if you look at the New Testament account, the promise of blessing was that, yes, one day there will be all tears wiped. And one day there will be a restoration of all things. And one day we will experience the blessing of the kingdom in its fullness. But right now, get ready. If you ever hear somebody saying that, that because you believe in Jesus, that because you have, you have prayed to receive uh, Christ into your life, that somehow that means that life is going to be easy and that, that life is going to somehow just be, uh, you know, that heaven's spigot of blessing is just going to open up upon you, you need to re- recast your categories. Because the first bit of on-the-job training the disciples got in the ministry of Jesus Christ was to see the um, adversarial nature that was going to define their life, to see the conflict that was going to happen. So Jesus, where does he go, right? He goes into the synagogue. He He goes into the synagogue to teach. And we know what he's going to teach, The time, the the, the supreme moment is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. So what happens? Well, so what happens is people are astonished. They're amazed. They They are awestruck 
with the authority with which Jesus teaches. Verse 22, they were astonished. They were, they were, so the English says astonished. It could be better translated. They were alarmed. They were alarmed at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and, and not as the scribes. So what, how would the scribes teach? Here's what the scribes would do. The scribes were very much like lawyers, right? So if you've ever read any kind of, of legal brief or anything else, what's happening is um, those who are trained in the law are citing, uh, they're, they're citing case law. Okay, so they're going and they're citing uh, by, by this judgment rendered and by this judgment rendered and by this judgment rendered, this is how this, this happens. And that's why this ruling in this case should be this way, right? And so they're simply appeal, appealing to other authorities, right? Um, the, fair, the, the priests, they would come in and they would actually uh, attempt to rule on things. But Jesus comes in and says, by whose authority? By his authority, these things are true. So they're amazed. We're going to see more of this a little bit later on. And so then what happens? Out of nowhere comes a man. Immediately comes a man with an unclean spirit. Isn't it amazing, by the way, that more often than not, we find the greatest conflict, um, the greatest conflict surrounding the mission of God closest to the household of God. Just think about that. And so the demon shrieks out. I know who you are, he says. What happens next is amazing. So the demon, so here's the thing with, with names in the Bible, right? If you use, if you use someone's name, it's kind of like the um, over the top move in arm wrestling. Um, you're supposed to be able to, you know, get leverage and be able to, um, be able to get uh, power over someone by using their name, right? That's why when, uh, there was a great wrestling match going on in the old Testament, um, there was the, tell me your name. It's not because they're making pleasantries at that point. It's because he wants to know his name, so that he can have power over. That's why it's amazing in Acts 4 that there is no other name given by men under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus. Okay, anyway, enough about names. I'm a little bit weird about them. So the demon says, I know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God, right? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus rebuked him. Now, here's how this would have gone down. Um, because demonic possession, it was a thing. And so here's how this would have gone down. There would have been someone that would have come to do an exorcism. And there would have been herbs, lots of herbs, um, maybe essential oils, I don't know. Um, but there would have been herbs. There would have been, um, it's possible. It's saying. Um, he, there would have been, uh, he would have put it under someone's nose. They would have sneezed. They would have used incantations. They would have, um, there would have been a lot of, I'd command you in the name of, of whatever, come out, right? And there would have been this big, huge deal. And it may or may not have worked. And Jesus looks at him and goes, stop it. Get out of him. That's not exactly what he said, but it feels like it, doesn't it? Almost nonchalantly. Be quiet. Come out of him. And he shrieked. 
and convulsed. And the spirit left him. Can you imagine if you were Jesus' disciples and you had just seen that happen? This morning, I went to work and I was fishing. I switched jobs completely on a whim. Brand new teaching. Saw a guy possessed by a demon. My teacher said, get out. Demon left. I don't know. How was your day? (laughs) They were astonished. And they were amazed at the authority of Jesus. And so they were all amazed. And they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, now listen to this. I don't want you to miss this. In verse 28, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so the story turns yet again. We see that now we're back into uh, Simon Peter's home with the, with the four. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And that, um, that a fever would not be seen as symptomatic of a, of, a, of a worse illness. A fever would have been seen as its own illness in its own right. Um, and depending upon the type of fever that you got or how high it was, a fever could be fatal. So a fever was not a small deal for them. And we know that Jesus had made Peter's house kind of a, of a home base here. And he came up and he, um, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. So don't also miss when Mark talks about the miracles and the healings of Jesus, there is always a connection to resurrection. He raised her up. And what did she do? Did she say, thank you? She, she began to serve them. I don't want you to get caught up in the, oh yeah, look, there, there goes a woman serving, yeah, whatever. No. She began to serve him because that's what life in the kingdom looks like. That's what resurrection life looks like. We serve one another. We serve for the good of our neighbor and the nations and the next generation. We do so because this is now part of our nature because this is what resurrection looks like. Whether it is greatness or ordinary, service is what kingdom life looks like. The disciples have seen something amazing. As, the, as Jesus, the, the God who fishes. Jesus is inaugurating the new kingdom even as he has pronounced um, judgment on the demon. Jesus is, is giving them a foretaste of the full and final judgment to come. Even here in healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, they are seeing a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come by there being no more illness. They're they're seeing the beginnings of the new kingdom of God. 
And they were astonished. And they were amazed. Jesus' word offered no room for for quibble or reflection, for for debate or disagreement. Jesus' word was absolute and final. To the demon, he said, go. And to the woman, he said, get up. Because the supreme moment was here and now. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. So then a crowd shows up, doesn't it? A crowd shows up and we we need not miss the instruction of the crowd that showed up. A crowd shows up because they have received word that a healer is in town. They have received word that a healer is in town. And everybody's got something, right? Everybody's got something. And they go and they see the healer, but they don't really care about what he has to say. They more care about what he's come to do. Just dispense with all of the theology, the new kingdom, just make my life better. And don't miss, by the way, that Jesus did, out of his grace, bless them and heal many of them. But don't miss their motivation either. Their motivation was, I'm hurt. You can heal. So let's just do this thing and I'll be good. Thanks for your time. It's why Jesus would so often be on the move. Because the reason that Jesus came wasn't primarily to heal. The reason Jesus came was to declare. To declare the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. To declare the inbreaking of God's rule and reign. Why do we come to Jesus? The people came to Jesus not because they recognized his dignity and function, but because it was rumored that a miracle worker has come into their midst. He came, Jesus had come to preach repentance and the nearness of the kingdom, but the people think only of relief from pain and affliction. They fail to perceive the significance of Jesus' conflict with demonic power. Beloved, Jesus' gifts cannot be separated from himself as the giver. Jesus' gifts cannot be separated from himself as the giver. The reason that we come to the kingdom, is it for its benefits or for its king? Let's be clear. There are benefits to coming to the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't come simply to give us a better life. Jesus came to become our life. And so we see that as Jesus' ministry begins to unfold, that there would be temptation, that there would be conflict, that there would be um, battle with demonic forces, that there would be collision with religious forces of the day, that there would be confusion even among his own disciples. And yet, this Jesus is the one who came to say that the supreme moment, the moment for which all of time has focused its attention, that moment, that promised moment is now. Repent 
and believe in the good news of the gospel, for the kingdom of God is near. There are some of you who are here today, and that nearness that Jesus speaks of sounds just about as fantastic as all the healings that Jesus performed. It sounds amazing, but it sounds incredibly distant from the reality of your life. And that Jesus, by his grace, has invited you here this day to hear this word. To hear that he is the king and that he has heard your cry for relief. And that he has come that you might have life and have it to the full. This king who has come and offered himself on our behalf. Who has sent fishers of men into the world only to realize that it is Jesus who has offered himself as a substitute and sacrifice for his people. And he invites you to come and to bring all of your sorrow and all of your sadness, all of your confusion and all of your chaos, all of your anger and all of your angst, to come and bring those things before him and find relief from those things. Because he is a good and gracious king. The gospel is not a recounting of what you have to do to get your life together. It is a recounting of what Jesus, Jesus has done to give you his life. And that is a glorious thing that we boast in this day.